This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. I am delighted to be here in studio at the ANU's Crawford School with my co-host Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Today we have another special guest in studio, Claire Walsh, who is a Deputy Secretary at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I'm going to let Alan introduce Claire, but first, can I offer our usual thanks to Charlie Henshaw for audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, as well, today, Martin Pierce for technical support here at the Crawford School. With that, let me hand things over to Alan. Uh, thanks, Aaron. It's a great pleasure to have Claire Walsh in the studio, in the cupboard, here with us at the Crawford School. So welcome, welcome Claire. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Claire, you're the Deputy Secretary for the Global Cooperation Development and Partnerships Group with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and you've got a wide range of international and domestic policy experience uh, after 16 years in the Australian Public Service. It's unusually varied. Your last job was as Deputy Head of Mission in the Australian Embassy in Japan. You led DFAT's development work at the G20 through the Australian presidency, a very successful presidency that was, wasn't it, mm -hmm. in 2014. And you were responsible for Australia's engagement in international efforts to design the post-2015 development agenda and related global discussions on development finance. So you've had a lot to do with multilateral development uh, banks, with global health and education and environment. You've worked also outside Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in um, the International Division of Climate Change and uh, also in the Department of Environment and the Department of Industry, Tourism and Resources. So that tells us what you've done but not why you did it. So I'm interested in what attracted you to the idea of working overseas uh, first. What was, what was the angle of view of the world, which uh, first led you to the place you're in now. So I have to think about this by reflecting as opposed to how I thought about it as a uh, intended design because I never really thought about this as an end career. I've kind of fallen into it in many ways, which is, which is fun to think back about what that pathway might be. And actually, I should update my CV that you just read out because in November this year, it'll be 20 years that I've been in Canberra and working in the federal bureaucracy. But actually, I started in local government, uh, working for a, a relatively small local government in the southwest of Western Australia as a community development officer. Okay. Um, so my academic background is in uh, social sciences and a, a bit of environmental science and, and management. And I, I worked from working in an, a local government to actually working for the municipal association, so at the state level, and then was enticed to Canberra to work in the Department of Environment, but still on domestic and uh, issues around environment and, and sustainability. And an opportunity came up to go across and work in the international division. 
And my old friend, Howard Bamsey, who you oh, know, yeah, well, yeah, know well, Alan came over and said, hey, I think you should go to New York to learn your first multilateral negotiation. So, you know, what's a girl to do when someone's given you a ticket to New York <laughs> for two weeks? And that's where I really found a niche. And I think, you know, working really at the coalface of community and then getting to a big multilateral room in New York, it was a bit of a self-awareness for me that I got the biggest strategic way of thinking about the world more than I got the micro way of looking at mm. things that are very immediate and that the people that you think about when you're working, you see in the supermarket the next day, which is the local experience uh, as opposed to the multilateral. So I guess I just found a niche that made sense to me once I got to the multilateral setting and I've loved it ever since. There's something about working in a big room that has its challenges that I that I quite like. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, talk about big room. Uh, the uh, the group that you're in charge of is called Global Cooperation Development and uh, Partnerships. So mm. what what's, that what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> so as you say, my, my job before this one was at the in Tokyo as, as, as DHOM and a lot of the structure of the department happened, the structure it is now happened while I was overseas, but much of it really was designed to reflect the foreign policy white paper and the settings that are in there. And so my group really does look at our global engagement, the multilateral settings. Now that's development, but not exclusively development. So I really work closely with colleagues in Geneva and New York across the UN spectrum there. Uh, right at the moment, you know, after this, I'm calling our, our um, head of mission in Geneva, for example, because we have the Human Rights Council session running now. And so that set of issues sits with me, but so do the other multilateral settings around climate change, uh, around, as I said, the issues in New York, we're starting to gear up for the General Assembly that happens in September every year, and thinking about how the settings from a strategic point of view work. I also have in there that multilateral settings when I think about the aid program. So of course we deliver our aid program bilaterally, a lot of the expenditure is there, but doing development, doing it effectively does actually require you to engage globally because that's where a lot of the institutions and technical expertise sits and or um, that's where it's best to operate depending on what you're trying to do. And I guess we'll come to that later. Uh, the other thing I have in my group is the thematic or sectoral setting. So how do we think about issues like governance or infrastructure or, or gender or climate change or fragility and conflict or agriculture and water, we need to think about that as a consistent way of engaging right across our aid program rather than country by country or region by region. So I have this le a level of expertise that sits in my group that in a way is almost like a consultancy arm that provides assistance to our bilateral programs and engages internationally so that we make sure that we're still at the cutting edge of best practice when it comes to those areas. I get to engage with stakeholders that um, might be new or different for a foreign affairs department of old. And by that, I mean, we're really thinking through the role of private sector. And that comes to the point about, in some parts, development finance, which maybe we'll get mm. to later and how mm. that's changed. But, you know, public money will only take us so far in most settings. And so, you know, how do we engage the private sector? Where are the interests? Where are the opportunities? So we're really thinking through private sector engaging there, uh, but also, you know, through our cultural diplomacy and the public diplomacy work that we do that sits with me. So cultural institutions, sporting organisations. And then the other thing I wanted to, to really just point to is the people-to-people -people links. Uh, and so sitting in my group is also the new Colombo Plan, the Australia Awards. There's a bunch of other stuff that sits in there, but that's the general feel of it. Yeah, well, that's a, 
diverse portfolio, <laughs> as they say, but an enormously important one because you, you, you talked about the um, multilateral system mm. at the strategic level. So I want to now turn to how shaky is the multilateral order at the uh, moment. Lots of things surprise me. Every time I get up in the morning, I'm surprised by something new in the world. But I think nothing has astonished me more recently than the uh, announcement by the United States that it was going to withdraw from the Universal Postal Union, (laughs) an organisation that no one had thought of really for about 140 years, but had been doing excellent work and allowing us to send letters to one another. So, you know, something's afoot here. The PM has obviously supported moves to shore up the uh, the WTO, but are there other parts of the system that Australia's worried about and working to strengthen? And if there are, what are we doing about it? So I guess I'd start with an observation that the international system's always been shaky in parts. Um, mm. if, you, if you talk to any historian of these things, they will point to any point in time where Somewhere, somewhere in the world was going, gosh, I wonder what's happening there because that seems worrying. Uh, and so the the question is, are we at a point in time where you're looking at quite significant changes and are they seismic if we don't manage to rein them in in many ways? But I think I would contest the idea that, you know, we had this fantastic system that works and suddenly something's happened and it's got shaky. But what's happening, I think, in the multilateral environment is that lots of good things have happened and that's causing change. So over the last 20 years, you've seen a massive amount of economic growth. You've seen a lot of people come out of poverty and you've got those people wanting to exercise their aspirational, you know, their aspirations in the same way that people who are already at that level of economic development wanted. There's more visibility. The information moves faster. Mm. Things are quicker. And so whether people are aspiring as individuals, as consumers, for example, or whether they're thinking about themselves as nation states who actually want to have more influence in this international system. This all comes about from some some pretty good settings. The problem is, and then there's the whole technology and the disruption part, right, that all of this has some very positive um, outcomes, but is also relying on new things that our systems and our rules weren't set up to govern or have thought about. And so anything to do with the internet, for example, Mm. whether that's e-commerce or it's anything else, we just don't have all the settings and we didn't in in the past because we didn't need to. And the truth is that not all growth's been equal, right? So while we've had great economic growth at the kind of macro level, if you dig into it, there's massive areas of disadvantage still. And we're seeing that play out in economies like the US and in the UK. Uh, you're seeing it playing out in Europe as well as uh, seeing it play out elsewhere. So these issues that we're seeing now, the concerns around globalisation, the inequ- inequity that's there aren't new. I just think that we're getting to the point where what people, what countries want to do about it is hitting some crunch points. Hmm. Um, And you're seeing that play out right across the board. What I find interesting about some of the discussions is that we talk about the emerging economies as wanting to have their relative economic weight reflected in our institutions. And that's fine, fair enough. But also that comes with the flip side. So if you're a, a developed country like Australia, you actually want that change to also be reflected in the rules and the institutions. So let me give you an example. You talked about the postal union. No one's thought about it for 140 (laughs) years, although I figure my 
colleagues in the Department of uh, Communications might beg to differ, but <laughs> the whole system is based on and uh, not how much it actually costs to move goods mm. around, but mm. a system everyone agrees on so that it's a fair system that if you're mm. in a country that can't afford the costs that would be in Australia, so it evens it out in some way. And those are set, right? But if you can't negotiate that change as economies grow and their costs change, or in fact things like e-commerce come along and you become a net exporter of packages or a net importer and that's changing, but the rules haven't changed. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't always advantage either side, but the rules have to, you know, have to be in a way balance that out. The other thing is climate change, which... Yeah, which is just, you know, back back on packages. The answer... Surely, though, isn't, okay, we, we don't like the fact that there are more packages coming from uh, China and we've got to pay American uh, right. rates uh, for them. The answer surely isn't, we're out of here. No. The, that's... Answer, the answer is, we've got to get, as, as with the WTO, we've got to go get down and negotiate new, uh, new rules. That's right. I mean, that's the way that we think about it. We, we engage. Uh, we don't we don't withdraw. I'm not going to speak on behalf of others. I mean, obviously, the US um, has signalled its in intentions unless there can be some realised change that mm. uh, suits their interests um, and their objectives. But that's right. I mean, that's the way that they've approached this and other fora and institutions. Our approach isn't to do that. Ours is to be in there and negotiating at the table and affecting change from within. The other area talking about that kind of quid pro quo, if you like, of changing things is in the area that I'm familiar with around climate change. So way back when we did the Kyoto Protocol, it was quite clear you had a set of developed countries sitting Mm. in an OECD list Mm. and you had a set of countries that sitting in the developing country uh, side of things. And so we set up a system that recognised that differentiation and put up obligations in different places. The world we found ourselves in around the time of Paris Agreement is emissions profiles have changed as a result of that economic growth and a bunch of other things. And that bifurcation doesn't work to solve the problem at hand. But it requires both sides of that equation to actually mm. realise that there are things that you need to do that might be a little less comfortable than the world we're familiar with. Sure. Um, I'm probably going to get this metaphor wrong, but I'm reminded of a metaphor, something along the lines of you're trying to repair an aeroplane while it's actually in flight. Yeah. Um, And you don't want the aeroplane to crash, but there are definite repairs that need to be made. And I think when you answered Alan's uh, pushback on the Universal Postal Union, we have a very clear view here in Australia about the need to engage and that that is the best path forward. How do we communicate and, and advocate for a position you know, for that position, how, how do we communicate the idea that the plane might crash and that we need to work within the structures that we have in order to reform them, not just walk away? So I mean, it depends on the issue and the forum, I guess, as to the strategy that you take. But what does Australia do in generality? One, we're not silent, right? We're we there and we engage. Um, we have ideas. We bring ideas to the table. We're constructive. And I think that puts us in a very good place. The other thing that I'd say that we do is we think about the coalitions within which we work. So, of course, we work with traditional allies and friends, um, but we're not bound by those negotiating patterns of old, if you like. If there is a reason why we would work with a different grouping of countries to affect change, we will. And I think there's, we're going to see more of that happening and more creative use of coalitions that, uh, of countries that may not have been traditionally ones that would uh, work together in the past. We 
stick by a set of values, right? So I think you can say if you looked at where Australia is negotiating anywhere in the world, there's a consistent set of values that you can see us operating with. And that also puts us in good stead. And the other thing, if I think about where I work in development, for example, and and some people have argued, do the big uh, development institutions suit the world that we're operating in now, the World Bank or the ADB or, or others. And what we want to do is say, okay, we need these institutions to deliver where we see important need. And so debates that might happen in the World Bank group when you think about allocation of resources, some countries will say we need to get as much of it can we can to Africa because that's where they're least developed, they're the poorest countries in the world. Where we argue that's important that you get financial flows there, but you can't ignore where poverty sits in Indo-Pacific um, uh, because there's po- pockets of it and there's real risks if you don't look at those. And there's also specific needs. So you may have a blunt GDP or GNI assessment of how wealthy a country might be. It doesn't look to vulnerability. Mm. It doesn't look to a whole bunch of stuff. So what we do is also bring that perspective of our region to a discussion. And I think that means that overall, the institutions or the funds that we work in have a more balanced way of thinking about mm. global development. Can I pick up on that point you mentioned about negotiating and working with partners that traditionally we haven't worked with? Mm. I imagine that creates a lot of challenges for diplomacy because, you know, in the particular issue of the day, you're sitting across the table from a counterpart, you're trying to work towards a cooperative goal in some area. But then you have a whole bunch of other issues in which there are sharp disagreements that aren't related necessarily to what you're talking about on that day, but nevertheless are sharp divergences of interest. And I imagine sometimes, you know, your negotiating partner is going to want to link those issues. Mm. Maybe sometimes we want to bring those issues in because they're very, very important to us. But, you know, you're still trying to fix the plane mid-flight. And so how you know, how do you think about that challenge of, of engaging with these new stakeholders with whom, you know, we have often historically and still do have disagreements? That's a really interesting question. But let me if it's always useful to sort of think about it from my own experience, yes. right? And so it's in some big rooms, we talked about operating in big rooms, so let's stay in those rooms. Sometimes you see big grievances playing out on the floor and they can be long-standing historical mm-hmm. grievances. The thing to understand as a good diplomat is, is this necessary to be said to a domestic audience or necessary to be aired, but actually at the end of the day is tactical Uh, And then you can think about how you engage with that Mm. issue. I recall one negotiation, me and Austria, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and they Mm. were really not happy with each other. (laughs) Um, And it was an uncomfortable just geographic spot to be in. But that was not really material to what it was we're discussing, but it was a dynamic that you had to Mm. understand. Sometimes it really is very sharp, right? And it's, 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 it's real. And so that is a very different position to be in. So I think about, say, the G20. We talked about the G20 in 2014. In 2013, of course, Russia was in the presidency and there was a whole bunch of really big economic issues that the world was grappling with, but Syria was happening at the same time. And you can't ignore Syria and everything that's happening there just so that you can get on with talking about the economic policy settings uh, globally. And so, and it's Russia. So, you know, the whole, it's not like they were not a big player in and interested in Syria. So in some ways it was a bit of an advantage because you had all these global world leaders and heads of multilateral organisations and so you had opportunities to have conversations. But it was it's really difficult 
then if you're a leader or you're a minister or you're a bureaucrat, a diplomat trying to manage that, you have to be able to multitask. You have to be comfortable in an environment of complexity. You have to have already established strong networks and links. You can't do it as a fresh newbie, I think, because people don't trust mm. that those most settings, of course, relationships matter. And also there's an art in seeing complexity and interdependencies and to be able to see those fast. And so it comes down to judgment, it comes down to relationships, it comes down to very quick thinking and it comes down to thoughtfulness um, in my mind. But it's never easy, but you can't put all things to one negotiating or one setting because, of course, it will always be there when you walk away and everyone understands that as well. Claire, you talked about human rights in mm. Geneva before. I just wanted to ask you how, do, how the government decides which of the myriad attacks on human rights that occur in the world every day it should take up. What does taking up a human rights issue mm. mean and how much of this is done in the bilateral relationships and how much through the multilateral institutions like the Human Rights uh, Council mm. that, that uh, you deal with? So we engage with human rights issues bilaterally, regionally, multilaterally, and it's actually fundamental in terms of the way that Australia thinks about its place in the world is the our commitment to the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and, and those settings. If we think about the Human Rights Council, which we're a member of at the moment, we said there are five pillars. These are the things that are really important to Australia. And if we get elected onto the council, these are the sorts of things that we will be front and centre pushing for. So gender equality, freedom of expression, good governance and strong democratic institutions, human rights of Indigenous peoples, strong national human rights institutions. We also have a... Um, a death penalty strategy and we advocate very strongly globally on issues around death penalty. And we also have a good track record in terms of promoting freedom of religion and belief, the rights of persons with disability and the rights of LGBTI people. And so we will engage with those issues and others um, as strong advocates at the council level, whether that's through resolutions or statements and working with others. But of course, we're also doing that in dialogue. So we have dialogues with countries, certain countries, we have sta standard senior officials dialogues where we will talk about these issues. At the bilateral level, we will have regular engagements with our counterparts. But it's not a formula that you can apply. Every situation is different, particularly if there's a specific situation. Every country is different. And so we do have to be very nuanced and very careful, I guess, in, in how we advocate on behalf of human rights. Let me give you an example. There are some, so I'm the LGBTI champion in DFAT. There are certainly some situations where you would not be doing a very public, very strident uh, intervention or making statements around those issues because actually it would be counterproductive. You might well be putting people at risk, the very people that we're trying to um, advance their, their human rights. There are other situations where you can be more vocal and more forward-leaning. Ministers will assess those situations. Sometimes things are better done quietly and behind the scenes and, and are more effective. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need more of a public campaign. And these are just careful judgments. I was recently travelling... Um, to a country that I won't mention, but my um, colleagues at the embassy organised a roundtable. It's just internal for staff 
to talk about issues around LGBTI. And someone said, look, we know where the networks are for gay men, but we just can't find the networks for lesbians. Why is that? And some of the local staff said, it's hard enough being a woman in this country, let alone also admitting that you're mm. same-sex attracted. Mm. It mm. is a counterproductive to try and flush somebody out. Mm. You know, you would do more harm than good. So you do have to be very careful and nuanced about these things yeah. and be clear what it is that your outcome is that you, and what Australia's best place to advance. So on that sort of thing, how useful are those sort of, uh, you know, large multilateral forums like the Human Rights Council. I mean, there's been an awful lot of criticism of the, including from us over the years, of the council. Plenty of people saying it's not worth being in, plenty of people uh, leaving. Mm. So what do you see of, as the advantages of continuing to, if I can put it sort of bluntly, uh, you know, bang your head against a, uh, a brick wall in an institution like that? I guess one of the ways of thinking about it, what's the counterfactual if you didn't? Mm. So if you weren't in those rooms, if you weren't taking those leadership roles, if you weren't advocating for those issues in somewhere like the Human Rights Council, who would be, if you were like-minded, so just gave up and said, this is all a bit too hard? Mm. Um, and how else, you know, where's your credibility also if you vacate the space in one area, mm. if you want to then advocate in your region? So mm. I, I think that it's important for Australia to be consistent and present, and that's true with its, with its human rights or it's any other part of the work that we do internationally. Yeah, no, thanks. Claire, if we could move on to development and foreign aid, mm. uh, and I guess my first question is is a very broad one of what does foreign aid and development policy mean in 2019, but let me take a few steps back and, and talk about my experience with the topic because I did a master's degree in public policy over a decade ago now and I took classes on development policy. And in that class, you know, we talked about areas like poverty and health and education, inequality, the human development indicators, these were, you know, the front and centre and that's how you thought about how to improve people's lives. What we didn't focus on was large-scale infrastructure. And while, of course, infrastructure has, all, has long been important to development, it seems just a lot more prominent uh, in 2019 and particularly in our own, in Australia's own foreign aid mix. Um, and the example that comes to mind is, is, is telecommunications cables that we are providing to the Solomon Islands. You know, 30 years ago, I imagine you know, no one would have thought of that you know, ICT type of technology as being something with a focus of foreign aid. And, and so I, my question, I suppose, more specifically is how do you understand this broadening of what foreign aid is asked to do and to be? Um, and what are the consequences for how we ought to think about what it means to even specialise in mm. development policy, especially for students and young professionals in the field? Mm. Sure. I, I mean, I'm not a development expert in the sense that I've not got an academic background in development. So I can't speak to the sorts of things that you might have le uh, learned um, <laughs> academically years ago. But I would say that we can't look at development as if it was static, because we don't look at any other issue as though it was static. I think it's also think, uh, useful to think about whether we're talking about development or aid. And that's a debate that's being had out there. What are we talking about aid or development? And I think people have different uh, ideas of what they are. So, for example, a humanitarian response where you're just getting in there quickly and doing things quickly, that is aid, mm. right? Development is long-term, it's a long-term investment. And so 
the issues have changed as the world has changed, as countries get more able to finance their own development. What they need from partners changes uh, by definition and we need to be able to respond to that. I think the focus, though, on poverty and human development have always been constants and remain fundamental to at least the Australian Development Assistance Program. And I don't think that the focus on infrastructure is particularly new, but how we do infrastructure um, changes over time. So any study of economic growth will take you to infrastructure very Mm -hmm. quickly, right? If you're talking about getting better education outcomes or better health outcomes, yet kids can't get to school because there's no road between their village and where the the building is, their schools are, or they can't get good, proper health infrastructure, you're not going to get those outcomes. But if you think about some of the figures, 417 million people in the Asia-Pacific still lack access to electricity. Now, if you think about electricity as a fundamental part of economic growth, 277 million lack access to safe drinking water. If you don't have infrastructure that gets safe drinking water to communities, you're not going to get good health outcomes. And more than uh, 1.5 billion lack access to sanitation facilities. So infrastructure has always been part of the health and education, the human development aspect. Um, And it's also essential, if you're doing it right, to address the issues of inequality, right? So at the moment... I think a lot of the debate is about the aid program, Australia's development program, investing more in infrastructure and particularly in the Pacific. The Pacific is not going to get economic outcomes, social outcomes, if we don't invest in infrastructure. Under 30% have access to electricity Mm. in the Pacific and coverage of the internet is really low, less than 50%. So if we're building a cable, an undersea cable to the Solomon Islands, that can only be a good thing, particularly if we connect if you've got better speeds and internet speeds, if we connect that then to health and education programs, Mm. so you're actually using them for good outcomes, this is a net benefit. Now, you asked me about what would I say to your students and whether you would say we should, uh, about development. So I think it's not that we're doing things fundamentally differently because of our own domestic thoughts on that. Really what it's saying is that the world has changed. Our partners are asking different things of us and we're responding to that as we should. In terms of a career and development policy, I think you'd give the same advice to people who are thinking about that as you would for everybody else. Don't go into it thinking it's going to be a rigid and it's always mm. going to be the way it is the day you walk into your first lecture. You need to understand this is dynamic and you will have to be as flexible and, to, and responding to that as, uh, as you would in any other sector. But I think it's absolutely a career path people should be uh, enthusiastic about. Indeed. A lot of our partners are also a lot wealthier than they were Mm. 20 years ago. Um, Yes, there are many who don't have access to electricity and and the basics uh, of a life of dignity and safety and, and health. But we have many other countries that are facing a very different set of challenges because they're wealthier and is what is our work with them still development? Uh, do, how do we? How does the government think about those those emerging markets and and people who used to re- receive that old fashioned development but maybe don't need it as much anymore? Like most of Southeast Asia, like mm. most of Southeast Asia. And so, if you think about uh, the countries that we have bilateral aid programs, uh, development programs with, there are only two that actually are considered low income countries, and that's uh, Afghanistan and Nepal. Other than that. Every other country, including in the Pacific, are considered to be middle income. 
but those categories, of course, (laughs) it's a really big category, right? So you've got low middle income to upper middle income, and that's anything from about $1,200 to nearly $13,000, right? That's right, is it? So sort of Kiribati is sort of, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are some real peculiarities, hence going back to a point that I made earlier, we really work hard in these institutions to make sure that those sort of very blunt measures Mm. um, aren't the only measures and by which you think about providing development assistance. And so how do we think about difference? As a country has more capability and capacity to fund its own development, their needs from their partners change. And so... It moves more to things around governance, around policy settings, about regulation, about how you put deals together. Infrastructure, for example, we will bring our expertise to bear. We will think about the other partners that do have the money. How do you put together financing packages? How do you think about sustainability issues? How do you think about safeguards? All the things that we've learned ourselves in building our own infrastructure, how do you make sure that you've got the environmental safeguards, the community safeguards in place? That's the sort of then expertise that countries look to us for. And so we adjust. Mm. If I could shift the focus then to, to donors, you know, it seems like there are a lot of new actors in the donor world now. Mm. Of course, China makes the most headlines with the Belt and Road Initiative, but there are multiple source, new sources of finance uh, from the Islamic world and even non-government actors like the Gates Foundation. Mm. How has their entry into this space changed the landscape that we face in, in our programs? So first thing to say is, of course, there's room for everybody because the, the financing needs, the uh, requirements of, of countries are so big. And so we actually want to encourage more contributions. And as countries themselves develop and have more capacity and capability to assist others, uh, then that's a good thing to do. Philanthropic organisations such as the Gates Foundation also fantastic. Mm. They are able to bring a level of innovation and new ideas to development because of just where they come from and how they how they work, which is very, very welcome. The other thing is that, you know, I said before, public funding is never going to be enough. Mm. And nor is it always appropriate to use public fun- funding in certain circumstances. So how do we leverage other sources of finance and put together uh, finance in a way that is helpful. So I think it's very useful to think about other sources of finance. Now, sometimes that's from other organisations and institutions. Sometimes it's actually around remittances, mm-hmm. uh, new superannuation type funds that countries themselves are putting up their own private sector. So all of that is good. No doubt, though, the landscape's changed. But if it's going to be a net benefit... I think that there are some fundamentals, right? So as it gets busier in a country in terms of the more players in the donor space, if we are not pulling together, there's a risk that we're pulling apart and actually making it much harder for a country because they can't work out how to engage with so many different players with different interests. If we are, as donors, pulling governments away from their core business because of our business, we're actually being counterproductive. So it's incumbent on all of us to work out how we all work together and and there's lots of instances where we do it well and there's lots of examples where actually we need to do better there. I think that we also need to be very conscious that we're responding to the needs of the countries as they've identified them. And this is an interesting space that plays out in the the, uh, 
in the commentary around development and, and assistance is what's the is it is it the national interest of the country that this is happening but that's the way we think about it and then if um, so Australians aid money if you like or development money is grants but for many many other players it's not or it's not exclusively so it's funds it's so it's lending or it's different sorts of financial instruments are those being set in a way that are actually building the capability uh, and are doing good things for a country or are they being structured in such a way, not through ill intent, but just maybe lack of thoughtfulness or, or, or not all full information, that actually what we're doing is lending money in a way that has poor outcomes. But we're not doing it. You're saying this is what other donors I'm just saying this is doing. a risk. Yes. As you get more and more players in there, it gets more complex. And also what is being offered is getting complex as well in terms of the financial instruments, the packages, the deals. I guess if we have a, a very set... Um, we're confident in, in how we do things and we're witnessing other models. Mm. How do we, you know, how do we talk to um, recipients about the risks and the, the benefits of the alternative approaches if we see risks, you know, as you describe? How does that diplomacy work in, in, in that context? So I think that we do that all the time, but we do it in a respectful way. Now, obviously, a country will, and ministers and elected officials um, will be accountable in some way, shape or form. And in the end, it's their decision and you have to respect that. What Our role is to provide trusted advice uh, and be honest players in, mm. in these sorts of discussions. And if we are um, and we build those levels of trust, we will be able to engage in those, mm. in those um, sorts of discussions. But it's not our role to go into a country and any country and tell a country what they can and can't and should and shouldn't do mm. any more than a country coming in here and are telling doing that for us. Indeed, indeed. Claire, I want to go back to the issue we were talking about at the beginning, uh, sort of your role in, uh, in DFAT and so on. And I wanted to ask you how you think about the role of uh, DFAT in a public service which is being urged constantly to think in whole-of-government uh, terms. What's distinct about the things DFAT does compared to the other departments that you've worked in? As you pointed out, most other departments these days are uh, dealing with the outside uh, world, have representatives um, out there. I've often had to point out to some of your um, your colleagues in other uh, agencies that there is actually, there's no international interest called diplomacy. <laughs> diplomacy is a skill set. It's mm. not a, it's not a thing. It sits apart from, um, from economic or security or environmental or other interests. So What's the point of DFAT? So if I think about when I first joined the public service and was engaging as with DFAT mm. um, as a, um, a member of a different part of the government, my way of viewing the issue at hand was relatively narrow, right? It was through the prism of environmental outcomes or it was through the prism of energy and industry. When I would gauge with my colleagues from foreign affairs, they brought a level of authority and understanding of a broader context, whether that's the bilateral or the regional, and had a much broader understanding of the the country's equities and the complexities, and also a deep knowledge of the countries or country we're operating in or the countries that we're dealing with. And I think that's where DFAT shines, is understanding uh, things as a whole and the complexities within that. So I've only been in Department of Foreign Affairs since the integration of AUSAID, and so the posting in Tokyo was my, my first one, and I was struck 
in Tokyo, like a lot of our missions, there are obviously other government departments that are represented and that have valid reasons for engaging bilaterally with, with Japan, whether that's our colleagues in agriculture portfolio or it's in the uh, industry and science area or it's in education. They've all got very valid reasons. Defence, for example, DFAT's role is to see the whole of that mm. and to be able to say you know, how these levers might work or provide really good advice to government about how those individual pieces come together in a, in a, in a way that we see a country as a whole, or as I said, as, as, or as a, when I, in my area of uh, interest in multilateralism, how all those pieces. Uh, we just have one more question, Claire, and, and it's about national security. Um, you know, on this podcast, Alan and I often talk about the nexus between security and economics um, and the increasing securitization of economic policy. And so I wanted to ask you for your thoughts on the securitization of, of foreign aid and development policy. Yeah, again, we're showing my disconnect from, from the latest literature and thinking in this because when I think about the securitization of, of foreign aid, I think back to 9-11 and the war on terror and the sort of the security challenges and the aid challenges uh, in that space. But of course, in recent years, we've seen the emergence of a very different set of national security challenges as we enter an era of major power competition. So I'm wondering how should we think about the relationship between you know, grand strategy and, and national security and foreign aid and development assistance in 2019? Is the influence of strategic thinking of national security policy expanding or contracting the space to be creative and impactful in how donor countries and indeed international agencies design and deliver development assistance? I guess if I can ask the question in a different way, again, on behalf of my students, should I be telling my students who want to focus on development policy and work in that space that they should also be taking classes in grand strategy and great power competition? So I think that the link between development assistance and security has always been there. Again, you know, I think we need to be careful not to rewrite history mm. and think the world that we're in is so much mm. different to the one that we were. So the issue, I think, for development uh, practitioners is how do you work to prevent conflict? How do you assist uh, countries ahead of time rather than after the event? So if you think about the billions of dollars that were pumped into South Korea after the war, how much more thought, what you could you do with those kinds of billions if you had invested them pre-conflict, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's one way of thinking about things. But we also know conflict has such devastating impacts on development. So if you think about the Solomon Islands, for example, they are still yet to come back to the level of economic growth they had pre-Ramsey. Mm -hmm. And it will take them still a number of years to get there. So I think at the current levels, it'll take till about 2028 for the Solomon Islands to get back to the point they were when the conflict started around 1998. So if you think about it in that context, how much money we've contributed, others have contributed to the post-conflict situation in the Solomons to bring it, uh, to assist them get the country back to where it was, that's an awful lot of money and resources. So I think the way to think about development and conflict is ideally in the preventative. Uh, then if you think about the humanitarian responses, so you've had a conflict, for example, you think about some of the um, situations that we find around the world, whether it's in Bangladesh or it's in Lebanon or other parts of the world with displaced people. Mm -hmm. 
first you've got a humanitarian response, right? So it's an emergent thing. You've got a group of people. You need to get food. You need water sanitation. You need um, shelter. Mm. But some of these people, these these problems are now so intractable that people will be there for be there for a very long time. And so suddenly our assistance looks much more like traditional development spend than it does like traditional humanitarian. And so the challenge now is to think about that as a continuum. And it's challenging all of us uh, as the, the some of these conflicts, I just, you can't see an easy answer to them. It's always been there. It will continue to be there. A fascinating area for students to think about. They should be studying both. <laughs> Well, Claire, thanks very much. We've ranged across a, uh, a, a number of issues even broader than those you're responsible for. In, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, I, I think, but it's always ter terrific for people to have the opportunity to uh, hear from people like you in these um, positions where you, unlike Darren and me, you have to actually uh, act to make things happen rather than commenting from the side. Thanks very much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.